a Bible, please turn with me to 1 John. We are starting today in that little book, and we'll spend, Lord willing, the rest of the year together walking through it piece by piece. Uh, If you do not have a Bible, feel free to uh, get up and go to the back at the coffee bar. There are several, and we would invite you to take one with you if you don't own a copy of the Scriptures. 1 John, several of you have... um, told me that you've been reading it, getting together with some groups of people to read it. That's fantastic. We even have, uh, I have heard, our first tattoo is already underway. I'm not giving an opinion about that. I'm just reporting. All right, so 1 John. 1 John, uh, the the introduction to a a new series of talks is always the most difficult uh, for me. So for uh, today, we're going to actually stretch this out over three weeks. So we're going to do a three-week introduction. Today, we're going to look at some sort of basics around what the book as a whole deals with, and then consider the first paragraph a little bit. Next week, we're going to consider the man that wrote it, John, and uh, the change that took place in his life. It is tremendous. Um, So I hope if you don't come back for anything else, you'll come back for that at least. And then the third week, We're going to look at some underlying assumptions that John had that are different than the large cultural assumptions that we have. And if we don't understand those, then what he says in the book isn't going to make much sense. So that's where we're headed the next couple of weeks. But for today, we're just going to try to introduce the book um, as a whole. This is probably, if not the most confrontational book in the New Testament, it's the second most. James is the only one that even comes close. This is a, um, the gloves come off in 1 John, and they come off because John loves us, and he wants us to know Jesus well, and to live out who he is. And so today, I just want to try and set that up for you. We've entitled this series, um, Authentic Christianity. Authenticity is all the rage today. It is something we hear about over and over and over and over and over. The desire to be Real is in and fake is out. That's good, correct? We shouldn't want to be fake people. We want to be genuine. We want to be authentic. However, part of that cultural change that's been taking place is that it is not uncommon to be people that value genuineness more than accuracy. The word authenticity means... Genuine and correct. If you look it up in the dictionary, that's what you'll find. But we've kind of taken that second piece away to where authenticity just means be genuine. It is more important today to be thought of as somebody that is sincere than it is to be somebody that's right. So we're told in many different ways, look inward, trust your heart, find authenticity, meaning, belief, And whatever you come up with is great as long as you're true to yourself. Does that sound familiar? That is the mantra of our culture. This week I found it in a very interesting place. Um, A shout out for the movie Box Trolls. Who else has seen it? Not uh, a few of you. Okay, so Box Trolls is a new movie that just came out. It's about an orphaned boy who's taken in by creatures that live in boxes. Pretty likely. The lead character is a guy named 
eggs. All right? So um, he goes through a crisis of identity in the movie. And he thinks he's a box troll, but he's really not. And he's trying to figure out, am I a box troll or am I a human being? That's essentially what the movie's about. It involves all kinds of other strange things like hats and cheese. But the pivotal scene in the movie is when he's coming to terms with, what am I? And he doesn't look for outside evidence. Instead, he looks inside. And here's the quote. Here's the the key moment in the movie. He says, don't do it. It won't change who you are. Cheese hats boxes. They don't make who you are. You make who you are. You make you. So that's what I taught my children when I went for them, with them to see that movie. You make you. Be authentic to you. That's the most important thing. That is a pile of dog dookie. That is not true. But do you hear it? Be authentic. Be genuine. And whatever you come out as box troll or human, it doesn't matter. Just be who you are. Look inward. You make you. Jesus, on the other hand, says, no. He says there is right and wrong. There is good and bad. There is hope and despair. And these things are not rooted in internal feelings. They're rooted in outward, objective, historical facts. Christianity, just for example, is very, very, very different than Buddhism or Confucianism, that tells you to look inward. Christianity says look outward. The book of 1 John is going to push on that button over and over and over and over and over again. John, when he wrote it, wrote to a group of Christians who had a large section of their church depart. And these people who they had trusted in, who they put confidence in, who they listened to, suddenly began teaching something very different. And so naturally they were confused. And so John tells them, not you make you, be who you are. He tells them there is authentic Christianity and there is counterfeits. There are things that look like it, sound like it, smell like it, but don't turn out to be the real thing. And we live in a time where there is certainly spiritual counterfeits. First John is in the Bible to persuade us that authentic Christianity not only exists, but it can be ours. We can know it. We can experience love and joy and assurance. John is going to tell us that authentic Christianity is like a three-legged stool. It's got to contain these three posts or the stool is going to fall over. And this is sort of some of the background that I want to give you today before we read some of it together. If you're missing one of these legs, then John says Christianity falls over. It won't stand. So the first thing he's going to tell us is that authentic Christianity flows from accurate beliefs in God. Authentic Christianity flows from accurate beliefs in God. Friends, beliefs matter. They matter. They're not inconsequential. It makes a difference whether you believe Jesus is a way to God or the way to God. That's a different Jesus depending on what you believe there. 
It matters whether you buy the biblical notion that Jesus was the perfect combination of man and God, as the scriptures say, as opposed to the idea that he was simply somebody that looked like a man. It matters. It has, there are eternal implications if you believe that you can love Jesus, but not commit to loving people as a member of a church. Beliefs are significant. There's no reason to be afraid of them. There are there are things that we can put out in the open. We can lovingly, kindly, gently look at them and consider them together and look at what the scriptures would say. John's going to tell us that real faith is not the absence of beliefs, but rather it's the rock-solid conclusions we reach based upon them. That is a very different way of thinking about what faith is. So John's going to push those buttons for us. It's going to be a lot of fun. Some of those are going to make us uncomfortable, and some of those will make us happy. But we're going to look at all of them together, right? That's what we do here. We take the scriptures and analyze them. So the second leg on our stool is that accurate beliefs in God are to produce lives of obedience for God. So if we go back to what we said in in our introduction, that authenticity is the rage today. Part of that is really, really good because there is large swaths of Christianity, if you want to call it that, in American culture today that profess one thing but then live something completely different. And Christians and non-Christians alike react negatively to that. And we should. Because John's going to tell us If you claim this belief, then the natural conclusion that follows is that your life is going to look like this. Not perfectly, of course, but if we say we believe, for example, that Jesus is God and man and that he died and rose again, then what follows is there's no one else like that. Therefore, I'm going to give my life to him and seek to live in his power and strength. If I have the first but not the second, then I don't really have the first. That's what John's going to tell us. And he's going to seek to help us understand that in order that we could live an authentic life with congruency between beliefs and behavior. I think probably nothing has hurt Christianity more than those that claim this but don't have this because this speaks louder than these. And people can see through that a mile away. And so John's not going to tell us, you have to obey and believe perfectly or you don't really love God. But he is going to say, for example, if you say you love God, so you profess, I love God, but you hate your brother, then you don't really love God. And he's going to tell us that because he loves us because he doesn't want us to have inauthentic faith. Another example, 1 John 1, 5. We'll look at this in a couple of weeks. God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. So that's the first. That is a declaration of truth. It's a fact that John is claiming. God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. Later in the book, 1 John 2, 9, he says, Whoever says he's in the light, so this is back here, but hates his brother is still in the darkness. He's getting at behavior. He's going to tell us beliefs lead to behavioral change. Not 
Change your behavior in order that you can become a Christian. But because you believe this, then your behavior's got to change. So that's our second leg on the stool. The final one is this. Beliefs and obedience are grounded in and produce love. More than anything else, the message of 1 John is that the gospel is a gospel of love. For God so loved us that he gave his one and only son that whosoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. God's not satisfied with abstract belief or cold obedience. Those things don't honor him. God wants your affections. He yearns for your heart. He cares about your emotions. He's after your love. He wants you to know his love, to experience his love, to live in light of his love, and then to share that love with other people. All through this letter, we're going to see, friends, that John can hardly write a sentence without thinking about and being captivated by the God who he loves so much. His aim is that we would know him more in order that we would love him more, in order that we would express that love to other people. John was a very old man when he wrote the letter of 1 John. He's the only apostle who was not killed for his faith. The only one that made it into the years of dying of natural causes. And this old man, as he thought about his long life, the thing he kept going back to is, God is a God of love. And God's people are people of love. John wants to help us see that and live in light of that. So with that as our consideration of the book as a whole, would you look with me at chapter 1, verse 1, and we will just simply read the first paragraph and consider some of what it says in our remaining time together. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we've looked upon and touched with our hands, concerning the word of life, The life was made manifest, and we've seen it, and testify to it, and proclaim to you eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us, that which we have seen and heard. We proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. We're writing these things so that our joy may be complete. That is a very, very weird sentence. John starts with an abstract way of talking in order to try and make something very clear. For us, we don't typically talk that way, so it is a little confusing. But here's his big idea. Christianity stands or falls with Jesus. The whole thing from beginning to end, is about Christ. As Katina shared with us earlier, all of Scripture from beginning to end is about Christ. And John claims not just to have heard about Christ, but to have seen Him, to have witnessed Him, to live with Him. And he's going to speak to us as one who lived with Him in that way. What you do with Jesus is the most important thing about you. But before we discuss what John said about Jesus, let's look at that last sentence, that last phrase. We are writing these things so that our joy may be 
complete. How does that sound to you? Would you like a heaping pile of joy? So much joy that you would say, my joy is full. It's reached its desired conclusion. My plate is overflowing with joy. I have so much joy, you can have the morsels that fall on the ground. I won't miss it. I have lots and lots and lots and lots of joy. Doesn't that sound great? That sounds fantastic. Why don't you turn to the person next to you and say, you were grumpy earlier today. You need some joy. I won't ask for your stories. John, uh, John says a couple of different times in this letter, I'm writing this to you for this reason. So he, he gifts us with very explicitly clear statements about his purpose in writing. Uh, those of you that have uh, been in English class recently, you will have probably heard a teacher say, you write a paragraph and you give your thesis statement. That's what John's doing. He's simply being a good um, English student. That's a bit of a stretch, but you get my point. Human beings are people addicted to the pursuit of joy. You simply can't help it. Ever bit as natural as your body draws in its next breath, your soul seeks joy. You cannot help it. It is what you do. Every day we're bombarded with messages of what will make us joyful. Long ago, Pascal put it like this. All men seek happiness. This is without exception. Whatever different means they employ, they all tend to this end. The cause of some going to war and of others avoiding it. The same desire in both, attending with different views. This is the motive of every action and of every man even of those who hang themselves. Pascal put it well. Now we're told there's all kinds of things that will give us joy, right? Somebody shout one out. What are we told will give us joy? My gosh. Ice cream. What was that one? Cox Internet. Wow. All right. So that was the most you've ever responded when I asked you a question. <laughs> Did those things work? I think the answer isn't as simple as no. I actually think the answer is yes. They did. They did. Ice cream. A new car, a child, fast internet. Do those things give joy? Temporarily, yes, they do. That's why you continually go back to them over and over and over and over and over. The problem is they don't last. They can't last. But even deeper than that, the problem is they turn good things into objects of worship. 
And therefore, they will never fail to fail. They will always come up short because they weren't designed to bear the weight of worship. They were designed simply to be things that are enjoyed. What happens when we look for joy apart from God? Inevitably, what happens is we end up using people or using things in a way that they weren't designed to. Now, let me use just one example because it's the most obvious and the easiest one to grasp. And if uh, you're more than eight or nine years old, in some way, shape, or form, you've done this. So the easiest example would be that of a romantic relationship. Turn your radio on today and try to find a song that isn't about some form of a romantic relationship. It's almost every single one. So here's how it plays itself out. Most commonly today, a man worships sex. He believes that wonderful physical pleasure is the greatest of all joys. If you think that, go to Nick's class. A woman worships feeling lovely, worthy, and desirable. She believes the attention of a man will give her that greatest of all joys. That sounds like a match made in heaven, right? These two people will just fit together and it will all be bliss for there on after. They fall in love. Very quickly, they begin having sex. And the sex is really good. He finds pleasure in pleasure. She finds pleasure in being pleasurable. Life is good. That looks like love, right? Every movie that you will see that has a romantic undertone to it, that is what will happen in the story. I just saved you $12. (laughs) It appears in Hollywood like that's what works, like that's natural, that if you go on a date and you're attracted to that person and they're breathing, then you go home and have sex. That's what you do. Yours seems strange if you don't do that, right? But if we look at it a little bit closer, what we see is actually these two people are simply using each other for selfish ends. That's all they're doing. It has absolutely nothing to do with love except for the love of self. Sex and being worthy of love are good but not good enough to sustain a relationship over the long haul. So whether it's the TV, that high-speed internet we spoke of a minute ago, or in real life, eventually that man's eyes are drawn to another. That's particularly true when he begins to really see her. When he begins to see the flaws of her soul, then he starts to notice the flaws of her body. And he's drawn elsewhere. And the grass looks greener on the other side. Suddenly the sex isn't quite as steamy as it once was. Eventually she sees that he does not really love her. He isn't captivated in an ongoing way. She isn't all that lovely. So she looks for the attention at the mall or the gym or a coworker or lost in a book. What started as love ends as war. John's going to tell us Friends, that plight that we all find ourselves 
walking in some way or another can be a track that you get off. You can leave that bus and get on a better one. You can find, even in the midst of a culture that celebrates that and sells it so extremely well, you can find real joy, joy that lasts, joy that's durable. And so we're going to spend months on it. And we're going to say the same thing every month. We're going to say the same thing every week. John wrote this so that your joy can be filled, can be complete. God longs for you to know the real thing, not a counterfeit that looks like joy. True joy is gladness resulting from faith in Christ. So let's go back to Pascal for a minute. I know that's what you wanted to do. Pascal was a mathematician, an inventor, a philosopher, a physicist, an author, all of this in the 1600s. For those of you with kids, basically, he was actually as smart as you think your kids are. When he was in his early 30s, Pascal became a Christian. He was converted from the pursuit of joy apart from God to joy in God. That's what Christianity is. He was convinced joy apart from God doesn't work. Jesus is the greater joy. I'm going to live for him. The night he was saved, he wrote something down on a piece of parchment and later sewed it into the coat he wore every day. Eight years later, when he died, it was found. Here's what it said. Year of Grace, 1654, Monday, 23rd of November. Feast of St. Clement. So he's talking about the day he was saved. From about half past 10 at night to about half an hour after midnight. Fire. Did you know that there was screaming texts in the 1600s? God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob, not of philosophers and scholars. Certitude. Heartfelt joy. Peace. God of Jesus Christ. God of Jesus Christ, my God and your God, joy, 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 tears of joy, Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ, may I never be separated from him. When you think of Jesus, is that what you think of? Joy, joy, joy. It it is that. He is that. He is the fountain of all joy. And if you've been told of a different Jesus, then you weren't told of the only Jesus that exists. Because that's Jesus, the source of joy. Friends, the author of 1 John, the Apostle John, is going to tell us some really hard things. But he's going to do it because he wants us to be people of joy. Because God is after our highest, richest, deepest happiness. No one is more committed to your good and your joy than God. No one. What would happen if you began to see sin as an empty quest for godless joy? Maybe those rules God gives us would become less about 
obeying some abstract concept because you have to, and more about seeing the safeguards God's given you in order that you could experience the joy that He has for you. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. C.S. Lewis said, All that we call human history... Money, poverty, ambition, war, prostitution, classes, empire, slavery is a long, terrible story of a man trying to find something other than God that will make him happy. Friends, ultimately, joy is having a connection with God. And then when we have that, we can experience all the other joys that God has provided for us. What if we had a church family who actually became convinced that that's true? How would that change the interactions we have with each other? Now, speaking of and thinking of what John tells us about Jesus, let's read it one more time, thinking of it in that way. Chapter 1, verse 1. That which was from the beginning, speaking of Jesus. Jesus has always been. He's eternal. Which we have heard, which we have seen, which we have looked upon and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest. It was revealed, he's saying. Which we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. We've seen and heard and proclaim also to you. Why? Why all this talk about Jesus? So that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. Three central things John tells us about Jesus that the entire rest of our fall together will be built upon. Number one, Jesus is God and man. He's eternally existed with the Father. No one made God. God has simply always been. God is eternal. Jesus was not created when he was born in Israel to a young woman named Mary. He was incarnated, the scriptures tell us. He was God who added humanity to his being. Can I fully, completely, exhaustively understand and parse that and lay it before you? No. But that doesn't make it not true. Number two, Jesus came to earth. A central tenet of Christianity that cannot be denied if you're a follower of Jesus is that Jesus left heaven and came to earth. He became a man. John's going to tell us later, if you say you follow Jesus but don't think he had flesh, don't think he was man, then you're not really following Jesus. So anytime you put something into that bucket, that makes it important, correct? It took me a doctorate to figure that out. (laughs) Theologians call this, I just used the word a minute ago, the incarnation. Maybe you struggle with that idea. I did. I had lots of trouble with it. I'm the guy that reads the Bible and says, huh? What? Really? You expect me to believe that? How in the world did that happen? 
a God that's always existed was squeezed into a baby? He cried? He had to have a bottle? Someone wiped his rear end? And that's God? Are you kidding? That's your pastor. (laughs) There's space. There's room to say, I'm having a hard time with that one. Can you help me? Let's read it together. Let's pray. Let's talk. Let's draw on the board. But in the end, what do we accept as our authority? What I can make sense of or what the scriptures say? John Piper, a former pastor I really respect, wrote this. This is the stumbling block of the incarnation. When God becomes a man, he strips away every pretense of man to be God. We no longer can do our own thing. We must do what this one Jewish man wants us to do. We can no longer pose as all self-sufficient because this one Jewish man says we're all sick with sin and must come to him for healing. We can no longer depend on our own wisdom to find life because this one Jewish man lived for 30 obscure years in a little country in the Middle East says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. In the end, most of the time, when I'm looking at the scriptures and saying, I don't know about that, it really has little to do with my desire to understand and has much to do with my desire to be in control. John's going to tell us a lot. This is a hard concept, but it's medicine for your soul. So take it. These are little doses of joy. One of those is that God became a man. The Gospel of John makes crystal clear Jesus was incarnated so that he could live a perfect life of obedience to the Father's will and then die a substitute's death on the cross for our sins and rise again so that all who give themselves to him will be saved. That, my friends, if you've never been in church before, is what church is all about. That simple message. Number three, and I've got to go quickly. Jesus gives eternal life that is to be enjoyed and shared. John shows himself a bit hard-headed all through this letter. He doggedly insists that the message is not just theological, but it's historical. He says, I heard, I saw, I touched, I personally knew Jesus. We all know that the best evidence is the evidence of eyewitnesses. When I was growing up in school, I grew to hate eyewitnesses. They were the ones always getting me into trouble. If you're here today and you're not a Christian and you care about history, then you'll explore Christianity. Because Jesus was an actual historical person. I don't know anyone that denies that. And so study the historical records of what took place. And before you make up your mind about Christianity, yes or no, do your homework. Find out what actually happened. John says, I heard him, I saw him, I touched him, I lived with him, I traveled with him, he was my closest friend. Jesus came, died, and rose again so that we would share his life and know his joy. 
Now, in closing, let me leave you with just two questions. And maybe if you're not ready to answer these today, you you will consider grabbing a Bible. Again, get one from the back if you don't have one. It's our gift. Grab a Bible, find a person in this room, say, how about we have coffee this evening and we read some of 1 John together and we just talk about what we see there. We believe there's tremendous power in the Word of God and that when you open this book, you are hearing God speak. So consider these two questions as you do that. What have you done with Jesus? My dear friends, the most important truth claim you will ever grapple with is the truth claim we've studied today. The claim that God left heaven, came to earth, became a man, lived his life in the open, a historical person, died in your place and rose again. That's what scripture calls the gospel. What have you done with that? Please, please, please don't be indifferent to it. Either embrace it or reject the whole thing. But don't pick and choose. Is your faith in Jesus real or are you just pretending? Second, I would ask you today, how's your joy? Would those who know you best describe you as a joyful person? I'm not asking you there, are you an introvert or an extrovert? Do you like people or do you? Not so much. I'm asking you about your joy. Charles Spurgeon, one of my favorite preachers, said it unlike I ever could. There are some persons who seem to have been reared on vinegar, who wherever they go always see some defect, and where they cannot be discovered, they will insinuate, ah, well, but we don't know what they do in secret, or we don't know their motives. But those who love each other, those who love God, they have something to rejoice in everywhere. If you're a follower of Christ today and you're not a joyful person, that's something to repent of. And it's something to explore. Because somewhere the joy tank got a bullet hole in it. It needs to be patched up. So what are you doing with Jesus and how's your joy? Would you consider before you leave praying about those two things and talking with somebody sitting near you? Let me pray.